Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Back in 1991, a few months before the first Women's World Cup, Michelle Akers went to a conference for sports apparel companies in Arizona. Here's Caitlin Murray, author of The National Team. And she gave a speech to these executives in the room, basically begging them to invest in women's soccer, to view women's soccer as the future of the sport, and actually put some money behind it. Michelle Akers, not her management, not anyone from U.S. soccer, not even Anson Dorrance. She took the matter into her own hands and made the case for herself and her sport. And she found an audience for her message in former soccer player Mick Hoban, who is now the vice president of soccer promotions for Umbro. He remembered having to sort of scrape by as a soccer player in the 1970s. So when he listened to Michelle Akers talking about needing to kind of scrape her career together, that really resonated with him. He approached her, gave her his business card, and he said, we want to get involved with the women's soccer movement, and we think you are the right spokesperson for it. Akers' passion moved Hoban, and the result was Umbro signing Akers to a major endorsement deal, the first ever for a female soccer player. And remember, the U.S. women's national team hadn't even won the World Cup yet. So you'd think that in 1991, after the team returned home as champions, the endorsements would come flooding in. You'd think if Umbro could see that women's soccer was the future of the sport, that FIFA and U.S. soccer would see the same. Or perhaps you've been listening to four episodes of this podcast, and by now you would not be thinking that at all. I'm Grant Wall. And on our final episode for this season, we'll see how the women from the national team took their relentless fighting mentality off the field and into the boardroom on their journey from champions to professionals. Welcome to Throwback. Michelle Aker's deal with Umbro was special. Most U.S. players weren't getting endorsements, and no one was getting a salary. For winning the 91 World Cup, 
U.S. soccer gave just a $500 bonus to the players who were out of college. Remember, NCAA rules prevented college athletes from receiving payment, even if they were the World Cup champions. The 91 World Championship was over and considered a success, so the Women's World Cup would continue, and FIFA would even have the decency to call it a World Cup. Now, women's soccer needed to become something sustainable. The players were losing money and putting their bodies at risk. Not only did they not have a salary, they didn't have health care. But big things like salary and health care weren't actually what bothered players like Julie Foudy at first. As the U.S. women's team continued traveling in the early 90s, their inequality with the U.S. men's team became even more frustrating. We also knew some of the men's players, for example, and you're seeing where they're staying and you're doing events with them and you're hearing about where they're training and, and you're thinking, that, that's not like how we sh- we're staying. We're not living like that. We're not traveling like that. The little things that never bugged you in the beginning because you're just so grateful to be playing for the United States of America, when you're on that team for as long as we were, you start to think, this just doesn't seem right. It would have been easy for Foudy to be enraged, but she wasn't a firebrand. Part of her appeal as a leader was her calm but firm insistence that the treatment of her team needed to change. She was always the de facto labor leader for the U.S. women's national team, so we'll mostly be hearing from her this episode. It's not an angry pound my fist on the table. It's just this constant like, huh, this is weird. And then that grows, and then you start making jokes about it. Like, oh, another Roach Motel, or we have to take the hotel shuttle bus to the game because we don't have a charter bus to get us there, which actually happened. And then you get wiser, and you start to realize, like, no, it isn't right, and we shouldn't be dealing with this. The team had been asking U.S. soccer to make changes since 91, but progress was frustratingly slow. That frustration continued to build over four years. They needed a new approach. It took a legend from an entirely different sport to spark a revolution. Mrs. Billie Jean King of America, the new queen of tennis. Billie Jean King was more than one of the greatest tennis players of all time. She was also a pioneer in fighting for the rights of women in sports. Along with demolishing Bobby Riggs in the 1973 Battle of the Sexes, King demanded equal pay as a player and was the founder of the Women's Tennis Association. There wasn't a better role model for the U.S. women's national team than Billie Jean King and how she changed tennis. Foudy and King were brought together for a roundtable on women's sports in 1994. In there, Foudy received some advice from King that would change the course of women's soccer. Billie Jean proceeded to tell her story about their $1 contracts and how they broke away from the tennis tour to form the women's tennis tour. It was a huge leap of faith. And I remember listening to her and going, oh my gosh. That's so much our story, and we can't get the Federation to change right now. And she basically said, Foudy, wake up. You do something about it. You change. You, the players, get them together and figure it out. You have the power to make the change. The timing couldn't have been better. The 95 World Cup was around the corner, and the players were about to sign a new deal. I was literally getting on a flight to join the national team, and we were supposed to sign another contract where we got paid $10 a day per diem. 
They owned all our likeness. They owned all our rights. And they basically were saying, you should just feel lucky you get to wear the red, white, and blue and deal with it. So she met up with her teammates and told them what King had said. And I said, we are not signing this contract. We are going to do something about this. It's time that we actually stood up for ourselves. That is when we started to look at, okay, what can we change here? There was a lot they wanted to alter, like how they traveled and how they prepared to play. Why are we in the smoking section when we fly? Essentially, we're one row ahead of it. Why are we staying in Roach Hotels? Why don't we have a trainer? Like little things, right? But then there was an even more fundamental change that needed to happen, being able to make a living wage. Most of it becomes because people were having to retire because they couldn't afford, of course, to live um, on $10 a day and pay rent when they're out of college. And that's when you start to realize, like, we're losing good players because we're not being supported, and that shouldn't be the case. That wasn't just a hypothetical. Take Shannon Higgins-Sorofsky. She had been a central figure in the 91 World Cup final. And coming off that tournament at age 23, she should have had a nice, long playing career ahead of her, right? I actually retired right after that. I was having a really difficult time making ends meet. You know, I was, I left at kind of the height of my game, which is kind of a sad thing. Every player faced similar economic challenges. They needed to do something that would help pay the bills. And one battle was brought to the U.S. women by the U.S. men's team that would help them do just that. In the early 90s, both teams had been forced to wear cleats made by the Federation's sponsor, Adidas. That limited players' personal endorsement opportunities. But change was afoot. Adidas had the rights from head to toe, meaning that they owned our feet as well, which is essentially the only way for the women, especially, that we were making any money. So the men rightfully came to us and said, in this new contract, we are fighting to not be head to toe. We should own our our feet and the right to sign a sponsorship deal for cleats. They won that fight with U.S. soccer. And for many players, the endorsement deals that followed made a big financial difference. I was Reebok back in the day. If I didn't have Reebok, I would have made no money. That was my only source of income. U.S. soccer had long argued to the players that it couldn't sell the women's game. But by 95, that didn't hold up anymore. Nike had just gone in big on soccer for the first time. The swoosh invested in the U.S. Soccer Federation and specifically in Mia Hamm. And the fact that they had signed a multi-million dollar contract with Nike, for example, in 95, and you realize, okay, there's a market for this. They see it. They're using Mia as one of their marquee athletes. Then why isn't U.S. Soccer seeing there's a market for it? The market for the athletes had changed, but U.S. Soccer didn't. And tensions spilled over into the 95 Women's World Cup, where the players and U.S. soccer continued arguing well into the tournament. The 95 middle of the World Cup, we were dealing with those types of contractual issues with U.S. soccer. Things that were important, but we should have never been dealing with in the middle of a World Cup. Despite fielding another talented team, the U.S. would finish third at the 95 World Cup. Nemesis Norway got its revenge for the 91 final and beat the Americans in the semifinals on its way to winning the tournament. Norway was good. But it didn't help that the Americans were distracted. Here's Karen Gabera. Part of the reason that we would all agree that 
we didn't win in 1995 was having the distraction of having to fight for those things. So we had to find a balance. They had lost the cup, but a chance for redemption was just a year away. Hi, I'm Michelle Akers. I'm a football player. I'm here at the summer games. In 96, women's soccer would be an Olympic sport for the first time. The Olympics were taking place in America, giving the U.S. women a unique opportunity to play for a major title at home. But once again, U.S. soccer was offering the women's team a raw deal. U.S. soccer only wanted to pay us if we won gold. And we said, well, you offer three tiers for the men, gold, silver, bronze. Why wouldn't you offer that for us? And he's like, because you guys will win it. And our expectations are different for you. (laughs) Oh, I think his quote was, we don't reward mediocrity. That didn't sit well. The U.S. players weren't going to make the same mistake they made in 95. They weren't going to allow themselves to be distracted during the competition. Instead, they flexed early. There was a tournament or a camp in January of 96. We decided as a group that unless they at least sat down at the table with us on some of these issues we had brought up, we weren't going into camp. It was quite a bit away from the 96 Olympics. It's not like we were threatening to boycott the Olympics, but we were saying, look, you know, we're not going into camp. The players were standing firm behind their captains, Foudy and Carla Overbeck. Still, echoes of 95 and the fear of missing out on a lifelong Olympic dream made sitting out a camp a bold move for the U.S. women. Here's Christine Lilly. And it could have affected us going to the Olympics, and it was really kind of a scary time. Um, But we were fighting for something bigger than just us. It was more of, you know, the growth of the women's side and the support of the women's program. The players won a compromise with U.S. soccer. They would get bonuses for winning gold or silver in 96. It wasn't equality with the U.S. men's team, but it was a gain. The U.S. went on to win the gold medal in a thrilling 2-1 victory over China. What's more, the crowd for that game at the University of Georgia football stadium was 76,489. Clearly, to the general public, there is curiosity and excitement about the U.S. women's team. They had this victory, they had endorsement deals, they had a growing fan base. Now they needed to press U.S. soccer. Here's Caitlin Murray. In 1998, the players started to realize, we need to get a lawyer who's going to represent us so we can push back against U.S. soccer and some of these issues that we've been having. So they hired a guy named John Langle. They had a previous lawyer who wasn't getting the job done, but Langle was dedicated. He wanted what you'd expect, better pay, fewer flea bag hotels, you know, the basics. The team had a training session and John Langle was there and he noticed that Christine Lilly was gone. And the players told him that she had to run out and get bagels and fruit for the team because they had two-a-days and they needed to eat in between training sessions. And John Langle was surprised by that because the men's team was getting meals provided for their training sessions. John Langle started fighting to have the players fed, along with his list of other concerns. In the meantime, the players kept training for the 99 World Cup. If you remember from episode one, they also promoted that event almost like door-to-door salespeople, doing everything they could to make sure the World Cup would be a success. 
But their pushing back on U.S. soccer was starting to make some important people nervous, including Marla Messing, the president and CEO of the 99 Women's World Cup. Here's Fowdy. I was doing actually a SI photo shoot on Necker Island for the swimsuit issue. I cannot believe I said yes to that. All of a sudden, one of the people that works on Necker Island goes, Miss Fowdy. I said, yes. They said, you have a phone call. I have a phone call? <laughs> I mean, this is pre-cell phones. So I get on the phone and it was Marla. She wanted an assurance that we were not gonna boycott the World Cup or strike during the World Cup. And I said, Marla, darling, come on. How much work have we put into this alongside you? There's no way we're gonna jeopardize this, I promise you. You don't have to worry about that, you're good. The labor battle was still simmering with U.S. soccer, but the players were being noticed by corporate America. Mia Hamm had endorsement deals with everyone from Nike to Perch Shampoo to Barbie. I can be champion of Women's World Cup soccer. I can be a goalie. Like soccer Barbie. Or a power forward. Like me. It's Mia Hamm. And it wasn't just Mia. Not only did Hamm help bring teammates to Nike ads, but those teammates, including 91 vets Fowdy and Brandy Chastain, were getting their own deals, too. They play soccer by day and fight crime by night. They are the baddest mamas on the planet. Take that job, turkey. Right on! Fowdy and Chastain. Brought to you by Bud Light, a proud sponsor of the U.S. Women's National Soccer Team. The U.S. Women's National Team had bona fide stars. And while corporate America was eager to take advantage of their celebrity, U.S. soccer didn't do nearly enough to anticipate how to capitalize. We said to U.S. soccer in 98, maybe even 97, what are your plans to promote the team immediately following the World Cup? Knowing full well that they never thought like this. And they're like, hmm, we'll get back to you. Now, mind you, a year and a half out, we don't know how successful this World Cup's going to be, but we believe as players it should be successful. So let's build on this moment. Soccer is the world's game, but players like Fowdy saw the potential for a successful World Cup to create lifelong American soccer fans. So what did U.S. soccer say? They come back to us and said, well, we had thoughts of sending you to Egypt. I shit you not, that's what they said. It would be pretty hard to create more American soccer fans when the team is in Egypt. The U.S. players had a better idea, so they took it upon themselves to organize an event that would help grow the game at home. To do this, they needed to tour and play more games in front of American fans. But the Federation had the rights to any sort of outdoor victory tour. We said, well, what if we go indoor? John Langle sent a note saying we have plans to do this since they didn't have plans to do it and they never responded. They just blew us off. So we planned it all. We got sponsors. Toys R Us was a huge sponsor. The U.S. players knew 99 was going to be big, but it was bigger than anyone imagined. Think about this moment again. They were on the covers of Sports Illustrated, Time, and People. They sold out NFL stadiums and drew the largest U.S. TV audience ever at the time for a soccer game. That photo of Brandy Chastain celebrating in a sports bra represented just how earth-shattering this moment was. Americans, especially young girls and women, had never seen women's sports look like this. And that bell could not be unrung. This was everything the players had been saying women's soccer could be and more. And in the wake of the victory? 
when we won the World Cup in 1999, there was a full-page ad the very next day in the newspaper of this Toys R Us victory tour with the national team, and U.S. soccer went ballistic. Despite all the warnings, U.S. soccer was shocked. The Federation set up a meeting with Foudy, Mia Hamm, and Langle. Now, this is right after the U.S. women had won the 99 World Cup. They were the American cultural story of the summer. They were at the height of their powers, and U.S. soccer didn't get that things had changed. They come in pretty heavy-handed. How dare you do this? Why wouldn't you do it with us? <laughs> and I'm like, oh my God, what is going on here? Like, n- revisionist history. We tried to do something with you. You weren't going to do anything. That's the whole point. He said, you've never understood where we're coming from. This is the whole problem. Shockingly, U.S. soccer's strategy of berating the team's leaders was not effective. So they tried a different tack. And then they said eventually, we will pay you more to do it with us. Mia and I, I think, started giggling. We said to them, this is the problem. It's not about the money. I said, it's the fact that you guys don't get it. You don't get us. You don't get how we're wired. You don't get how we think. You don't get that the fact that you're not even thinking about planning something. We're not going to just jump ship and go for more money when you don't get us. No, we're not doing that. I said, this group believed in us. You guys haven't. The argument culminated, according to Foudy, when U.S. soccer threatened to sue the players if they went on their indoor tour. And Mia Hamm replied, quote, If you sue us, I'm prepared to never play for U.S. soccer again. I said, yeah, I agree. I'm, I'm pretty good with that, too. I'd be happy to walk away from my career right now. Hamm knew she had the support of Nike, her biggest sponsor, which was also the largest source of income for U.S. soccer. And so, outmaneuvered by its most famous player, U.S. soccer relented. The players went on their indoor tour. When you look at the legacy of that indoor victory tour that they started, that victory tour still exists today. The team still goes on it after major tournaments, and it's a really important thing that the team does to kind of capitalize on the success that they've had in major tournaments, build momentum, connect with fans, help grow their audience, help grow the game. If they never conceived of this tour, hired people to put on this tour, and then threatened to quit playing soccer in order to save this tour, U.S. soccer was going to send them to play in Africa. It would have taken all the momentum of the Women's World Cup and just threw it away. After 99 and the victory tour, the collective bargaining agreement between the players and U.S. soccer expired at the end of 99, just a few months before the 2000 Olympics. According to Foudy, U.S. soccer refused to negotiate a new deal and eventually suggested simply extending the previous one. The players responded by going on strike. So U.S. soccer sent an under-23 team to a pre-Olympic tournament in Australia, and it won the tournament. At this point, U.S. soccer must have felt like it had the upper hand with its striking players. But afterward, those senior U.S. players made sure to call all the youth national team players and explain what was happening and why they should turn down any call-ups from U.S. soccer. With that accomplished, Foudy and the players were ready for what happened when they kept a hard line at the negotiating table with U.S. soccer general secretary, Hank Steinbrecher. 
He said, well, fine, if you're not grateful, we'll just take an under 23 team to the Olympics. We said, no, you can't take them. We've talked to all of them and they're on board with us. And he goes, we'll take an under 19 team. We're like, no, we've got them as well. And we had, we've gotten to all the younger kids. We got them all on a conference call and explained to them what we were doing. And we said, no, you could take the 15s. We haven't gotten to them yet. If you want them, you can have them. And then he realized like, oh shit, they've got their shit together. We contacted Steinbrecher to get his side of the story, but he said he didn't want to comment. What we do know is a deal got done, and it was to the players' liking. With time to spare before the 2000 Olympics, the players signed a new CBA that gave them better pay and bonuses, and also rights they had wanted to secure for a long time. We had things that we hadn't had in the past, injury protection. If you were pregnant, pregnancy protection, you were protected to have a chance to come back and try out after having a baby. There was daycare, nanny support, you know, things like that that we just, we had never had to such an extent. And even more than a fair contract, they finally got a certain amount of validation that women's soccer could be a functional business. They realized, too, rightfully so, that there's a market we're not tapping into. There no longer was the argument from U.S. soccer's side that there wasn't a market. We can't spend the money because we won't get the return. That's what they always said to us. And yet, even though they got some recognition, it didn't result in equal investment. The players got their hands on how U.S. soccer allocated some of its money. And for the youth programs, the numbers were stunning. Well, now our argument wasn't just, why aren't you marketing? It was, why are you spending 80% on a 12-year-old boy and only 20% on a 12-year-old girl? That's where we had them. Because they couldn't continue to make that argument. We used to say to them, honestly, I don't... I don't care where you fall on the spectrum of love or hate women's soccer. Just realize there's a market that you're not tapping into. And how stupid is that? Grab it. In some ways, U.S. soccer failing to see this market and capitalize on it wasn't all that surprising, given that FIFA took a similar approach. Despite finally starting the Women's World Cup in 91, FIFA had been missing chance after chance to truly invest in the women's game ever since. Seth Blatter would end up being FIFA president for 17 years, but he didn't use his considerable influence to push FIFA's member nations for sweeping change in women's soccer. And it didn't help that he had a habit of saying cringe-inducing things about women in public. Seth Blatter, friend or foe of women's soccer? <laughs> I, I don't know. I mean, I... He was such an easy target for us, right, with the things he would say. And maybe behind the scenes, he did more than we've given him credit for, but... But how Blatter talked about women in the game mattered. When FIFA finally added women to its board in 2013 for the first time in its 110-year history, think about that for a moment, Blatter announced, We now have three ladies on the board. Say something, ladies. You are always speaking at home. Say something now. Foudy remembers being on stage as part of the Men's World Cup draw in 97 in Marseille, France, when Blatter said something about her at the podium in French. After Foudy left the stage, she says she encountered several apologetic women from FIFA. They explained to her what Blatter had actually said in French before a global audience. 
And they're like, all he commented on was how he liked your legs or something like that. You are beautiful. He did not say that you are one of the captains of the U.S. team. But for Foudy, beyond Blatter's Mad Men-era comments, there was a deeper problem with FIFA. Under Blatter's watch, it didn't change its policies enough to invest more in women's soccer and grow the game globally the way it could have. How can you not turn to your people at FIFA and say, we are totally missing this market. We are not tapping into it. You put millions and millions of dollars into women's soccer, you're going to reap the rewards of that because it's a totally untapped market as we're now seeing finally, which to me is inexcusable. If you're set bladder, you wield the power. If FIFA decides not to prioritize women's soccer and has a president who says the things Sepp Blatter said, what message does that send to the federations? Blatter is no longer the FIFA president, but the U.S. women's national team's fight for equality continues. In March, just three months before the 2019 Women's World Cup, the team filed a gender discrimination lawsuit against U.S. soccer, these days, Alex Morgan and Megan Rapino have become the leading voices, replacing Foudy and Ham. But today's players' fight wouldn't be possible without their predecessors. Our fight was for equitable. Their fight is for equal. It's the logical progression. The frustrating thing is when you hear them fighting for very similar stuff that we fought for. Equal investment, equal staffing, equal marketing. That, that should be standard, and yet you're still fighting for it. It's 2019, and players have to stand up to enact change. And unless they stand up, change isn't happening. The players from the 1991 U.S. Women's World Cup Championship team were the ones who began that push for change. The reason anything changed was really that the players were standing up, pushing U.S. soccer, being vocal, complaining, and not being afraid to back down. The 91 U.S. women's national team attacked, they pressed, and they didn't apologize. That only continued in their fight for respect from the public and respect from their employers. They didn't just win, they moved women's sports forward. We were a true team. We believed in ourselves. We were tough and gritty, and we were not going to be beat. We wanted to play. We wanted to fight. We wanted to do what's right for future generations, and we wanted to put it all together. There's no whining and deal with adversity. So all this was adversity to us. I wouldn't want it any other way. To be a pioneer in something and have lived that and seen it from both sides is, I think, a great gift. When I started doing the interviews for this podcast series, I didn't know much about the 91 Women's World Cup other than the U.S. had won it. To hear the figures who were involved tell their stories, it's been a gift. Creating a culture for women's soccer wasn't something that happened overnight in 1999. It took years of hard work, of fighting the establishment, of toiling in anonymity for a payoff that wasn't certain. A payoff that hasn't yet been fully achieved. When I watch the World Cup this summer, I'll be thinking about the women of 91 and where we've come from, and one hopes where we're going. I have two girls who will be going to the World Cup this summer, and I get to create 
those memories with them. I'm grateful for, for these players creating the environment to allow me to do that. Throwback is written and hosted by me, Grant Wall, produced by Grant Irving. Associate producers are Kara Kornhaber and Harry Swartout. Executive producers are Scott Brody and Ben Eagle. Editing by Emma Morgenstern and Adam Durson. Original music by Nolan Schneider. Mixed by Sam Baer. Thanks to U.S. Soccer, Cadence 13, and everyone who took time to speak with us with this episode. Throwback is a production of Sports Illustrated. For more of the best sports storytelling, visit SI.com.